We'd like to give a special thanks to Astro Agency, the executive producers of Space and 60. They provide strategic marketing support exclusively for the space sector. Strategic because their team have all the vast experience working within space companies are setting them up. So they specialize in getting technical messaging and brand positioning just right, as well as having the industry connections to organize podcasts just like this one and their space bar webinars, which we'd highly recommend for new space networking. Check Astro Agency out on social media. They're in all the usual places. Three, two, one, hey guys, back for another Space in 60. Great to be here. Finally, finally made it after missing, I guess, for the first, first two. Yeah, it'll be great for all the listeners to know that Andrew actually exists. I heard there was nothing but thruster jokes. That that's true. That's true. Everyone <laughs> wants to know about thruster. <laughs> booster wasn't enough. Booster was not enough. Hey, and yeah. speaking of boosters, it's funny because I was just reading about Artemis and the SLS. I guess SLS rolled out of the production facility and it's on the way to the launch pad in Florida. No, I didn't. I didn't see that. At least the the core booster, but. You know, I didn't realize that they were using solid rocket boosters on the side of the core for SLS. Yeah. I thought NASA learned its lesson. You're teaching well, me something new now, Andrew. Thank you. It's good to have you on. <laughs> no problem, eh? There, no, we go. Oh, there goes the Canadian. <laughs> you know, when I was out and about reading the news this morning, looking at the news on the Chinese launch, I was actually really surprised to see what's been happening there. Have you guys followed that when they were launching their their core piece of their space station? No, I just I I just saw that they launched the first piece. Was it uh, yesterday or the day before? It, it looks pretty modern. They're going for the slick, slick, modern, minimalist, you know, interior yeah. design. But no, yeah, yeah I mean, it, another space station up there, another huge piece of potential space junk at some point. I think the thing that really caught my attention is, you know, me, this seems like definitely a a power move to put up a piece of equipment like that. But what caught my attention, though, was that they they launched it, of course, on the Long March 5. And it's a modification from the last Long March. And it's got four boosters on every side, no pun intended, Chad. And (laughs) the, the thing that really got me is that they didn't seem to have any plan for having that re-enter. And right now it's on pace to re-enter uncontrolled tumbling into the atmosphere at a 45 degree inclination. So I don't know if it's actually the case, but the implication from what I read was that it's going to be tumbling and re-entering and really uncontrolled with no idea of where it's going to land, but it's at a 45 degree inclination, which means just north of New York, moving at a 45 degree angle. So it could be anywhere from just north of New York through New Zealand where they have no idea where it's going to land. No way. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And it's quite large, like a hundred tons or something like that. So it's, it's massive. And I think that's the wet weight, but I I need to go back and check. 
But anyway, this is going to be one of the largest pieces of uncontrolled re-entry uh, in a really long time, if not ever. That that's is crazy. crazy. That you guys sound just alike. That that's mm. a, that's crazier. We'll we'll keep <laughs> Andrew saying a, so at least a. that way we know which way we are. Yeah, we know who's who and what's what. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's I, I just think that when we've we've spoken in the past, we had more of a jaw in there. Where we were talking about space junk and we were talking about taking care of, of low earth orbit and being responsible in, in space. We don't know if it's actually the case that they intended for there to be an uncontrolled reentry or whether there was an accident of some sort, but to think about that, that there was just, there's just no plan for where that thing's going to reenter is just crazy. No, it's pretty wild. It's disappointing. I mean, yeah. I, at the end of the day, it's super disappointing. I think, you know, even recently on, I guess it was Twitter in the news was that SpaceX one rocket broke up over the Pacific Northwest and tons of people shooting iPhone videos or just camera phone videos of the breakup. It's going to become more and more commonplace. Hey, yeah. So hopefully that's the case is that we can put in a little more responsibility to our planning and, and have these things show up where they're supposed to. The other interesting thing about this, you think of all the rare earth metals that go into the components and the satellites and the rockets, they're rare earth metals. We're never going to get that that back. stuff back. Like yeah. that's just, it's gone forever from our planet and from our ability to use it. There's going to be one point in time where we won't be able to have batteries and stuff because we just won't have the materials to make it. Start yeah, mining no. asteroids. There we go. And with that, more stuff we, in space. More stuff in space. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we've got a really interesting guest, Christina Corp, also known as the Astronaut Wrangler, mostly because she was the former manager of Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, and I was reading back in July of 2019, she also produced the Apollo 50th Gala down at Kennedy Space Center. Pretty much set it all up, had a concert by the one and only Duran Durand and an amazing drone art performance out in the iconic rocket garden that they have down there. I would love to have been part of that gala. It sounds so cool. Christina also co-founded the People's Moon Project to invite the world to actively participate and become part of a legacy mosaic artwork. She conceptualized the experience and produced it with UK artist Helen Marshall. The People's Moon resides as a permanent exhibit at the Kennedy Space Center in the Saturn V Center. We're excited about our conversation today. Welcome, Christina Corp, astronaut wrangler. Christina Corp, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to uh, participate. Yeah, I'm surprised we haven't crossed paths before. I, I just learned that both of us are in the Orlando, Florida area, and there's a lot going on in space around here, but it, it looks like you've been really active in the community here. Well, the interesting thing is I've been in Orlando for six and a half years. I came from Los Angeles, and so I have to admit I'm still not very knowledgeable about Orlando. <laughs> Even though I've been here for six years, because I'm usually during non pandemic times, I'm usually on the road all the time. From a Canadian perspective, I was going to say Los Angeles to Orlando, that's Disneyland to Disney World. So it's all kind of the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're really alike. You know, when people complain about the traffic here in Orlando, I'm like, you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> it's so amazing to have you on the show. I've never seen anyone with a job quite like yours. So, is this something you came up with on your own or how did you get into the space industry? This is really unique. 
I'm truly an accidental space person. So I always loved sci-fi and space. You know, we were big Star Trek and Star Wars fans in my family. And uh, But I have to admit, I didn't know anything about space. And I was a musician, very musical family, moved to Los Angeles to try to become a rock star. Got signed to Warner Brothers. I sang with Ringo Starr. I used to tour all over the world singing backgrounds for other artists. And the funny thing is, I, I then I went to work for John Tesh, if you remember who he is. And uh, oh, he, sure. he, he took me under his wing and said, I'll teach you how to run my production company, record label, and radio show. So I did that with John for uh, five and a half years. And I loved that job. But I was running his company from Monday to Friday with him and then touring with him every weekend. I was in the band and tour manager. So in order to actually have a life, because I literally worked every day for years, I decided I wanted to have a nice, quiet, boring life for a little while. <laughs> and so I answered an ad in The Hollywood Reporter for Buzz Aldrin. And I had oh, wow. no idea what I was getting myself into, to say the least. Um, <laughs> what was the ad wow. for? It was to be an executive assistant to Buzz Aldrin. And it was public. It was not hidden uh, who it was for. And I remember the day that I applied and I said to my husband, I'd like to turn him and say, you're never going to guess who I just applied to. And he said, who? I said, Buzz Aldrin. He's like, what's he doing? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that was literally like my reaction to it because I had no idea what was going on with Buzz or space. But so, I think that it actually worked out better because I, you know, coming into Buzz's world with, with completely fresh eyes was, I think, what was really beneficial. For him and also for me learning about it and being so fascinated about this new world. Well, I'm glad That's to good. hear that Buzz wasn't looking for a background singer. <laughs> <laughs> Although that could have been good. I did have pretty interesting background on his rap song, if you've never seen it. No, um, there's a rap do? song? Yes, there's a rap song. So about a year and a half into working for him for the 40th anniversary of Apollo 11. I mean, that's one of the influences I kind of have helped have on him, which was to get him to do mainstream things saying, you know, you don't need to convince the space choir, like to get on board. You don't need to convince the space people. You need to convince people like me who love space, who had no idea there was more than Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin who walked on the moon until mm -hmm. I met Buzz. Mm -hmm. So that's cool. So we did this making of rap video with Snoop Dogg. If you've not seen it, you have got to Google it. Whoa, I was, I was yeah. just about to say, um, I can see a collaboration with Dr. Dre and Dr. Aldrin together. I think that would be amazing, but you've already got Snoop Dogg. I mean, what's better than that? It's pretty awesome. And I am singing backgrounds on that song. Oh, <laughs> wow. Way to go, Andrew. Canadian foot, Canadian mouth. Yep. So yeah, oh, so it was a, purely an accident of answering an ad and not seeking out this life. And I used to say, you know, I thought, but he was 77 at the time. I thought, ah, he'll die in a couple of years. I'll go do something else. And I would say this in front of him and I and people would always go <gasps> like in a horror, you know, that I would You say. mean that face I just made is what everyone else was making? <laughs> yeah. yeah. He would say, joke's on her. I'm still here. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was not what I expected, but I, I mean, it opened up this whole new world for me. And then frankly, it took me a while to really understand the significance of it, to be honest, because it was just a job to me. And after managing, you know, whole bands and tour, like 50 people on a tour, like dealing with one person really felt oh, like this is so easy, you know, compared to that. Although I always say to people, my rock star lifestyle prepared me for life with Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, Buzz is definitely the the rock star of the space industry, for sure. He's He's got a personality that I think everyone recognizes from from coast to coast and around the world. 
Yep. I always say I didn't get to become a true rock star. I ended up working for the rock star of, the, of astronauts. So anyway, so wow. I got accepted into the Apollo circle really quickly. And, you know, yesterday we lost Michael Collins. And Michael right. was one of the first people who actually called to congratulate me. I never got so many congratulations, like people calling me every day, congratulating me on that job. And I still really didn't even understand the significance of it for a long time. And it really wasn't until I set up the meeting for the first time Buzz ever met Stephen Hawking, that after we met Stephen that day at his office, the BBC was there filming us. But we didn't know that when we got there. <laughs> that was an accident that the BBC mm -hmm. was there. Anyway, later that day, we did this thing at the BBC and this Harvard professor was there and I was telling him about our day. And he was like, you're part of history now. You've got to document this. And I was like, oh, I'm nobody. It's like, no, no, no. You just told me you introduced Buzz Aldrin to Stephen Hawking for the first time. I would die to be in that room. And that's when I kind of started taking it more seriously. People call me up still to this day, all the time. Since you're the astronaut whisperer, and I would <laughs> usually say, it's not whispering. <laughs> Whispering's not the word. <laughs> and so I just started calling myself the astronaut wrangler because you're dealing with personalities. It's like dealing with rock stars. And some people don't like it. Some people will say to me, that's so disrespectful to the astronauts. And the astronauts are like, no, we, we understand. <laughs> Wrangling right. is the right word. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, to be an astronaut, you need to have that kind of personality. Like, just like a rock star. To be a rock star, to go day in, day out the way they do, you need to have that kind of personality. And I think you nailed it. You need to be a wrangler to last who that and, and get it in the right direction. Yeah. So who all have you worked with? What all astronauts have you worked with in a professional setting and in a casual setting within the industry? We'd love to hear some stories about how your career has developed. Well, I really did think I was only going to do this for a couple of years. But then as I began to help shape Buzz's brand and try to raise awareness, I created all his social media accounts, which I have to admit, when he was going on Dancing with the Stars in 2010, someone said, you know, you really need to make him a Twitter account. I was like, really? Like, I can't see him tweeting. And they're like, no, 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 you can do it for him. But I mean, I always did it with him. Like he would say something and I'd say, I'm going to tweet that. Or if something happened, I'd say, what do you want to say? And then he'd give me like, I don't know, a 20,000 word monologue. And I would convince <laughs> it to 160 characters. <laughs> yeah. And so anyway, that was really interesting to me as I got really accepted within the Apollo circle. So I, I met Charlie Duke very early on, Charlie Duke and Alan Bean, Charlie Duke from Apollo 16 and Charlie and Alan Bean from Apollo 12 were just really sweet and lovely. I got to meet Gene Cerny from Apollo 17 really early and he and Buzz did not like each other <laughs> at all. And so that was always an interesting interaction. Yeah, I bet there are some rivalries within the astronaut community here and there. Yeah, We probably wouldn't like to, to think about it, but I can imagine with all those really strong personalities and and those that like to push things to the envelope, there might be some some rivalries in there. I mean, they all have this true camaraderie that I really admire, you know, but they definitely are competitive. Well, it is a small club. I mean, regardless of the competition, there are very few people who have been in that club. And so I would imagine you have both sides of the coin with those relationships. Yeah. And I mean, these guys, even though they were old when I met them, they were all already old. They were, you know, when they would get together, they would be ribbing each other about who could see and who couldn't see, who could, who still had the capability to fly. <laughs> and, and so anyway, I mean, I was, I was really kind of 
pulled into this world and then accepted and really, you know, got to know a lot of them really well. And there was a point where, so the first three and a half years, I worked for Buzz and his wife, who actually hired me, and then he divorced her when my daughter was five days old. <laughs> and so I had to help him pick up his life. And so his whole world became, you know, me taking care of his whole world. After a while, though, because I created the Get Your Ass to Mars brand, all the t-shirts and all of that, that's all, you know, basically I bought him a t-shirt that, that said, Get Your Ass to Mars. <laughs> so I created that and that movement, that irreverent statement really like went crazy, you know, and then we started making different versions of it and stuff. After that, other astronauts started reaching out to me saying, would you consider managing me and my brand or helping me develop my brand? And I was like, oh my gosh, I am so busy. I, I do not need another astronaut on my plate. You know? <laughs> but when Buzz, as Buzz was getting older and he was not wanting to do as much, I started thinking, well, maybe I will. So I did actually, for a short time, manage Terry Burtz. He left NASA and I got him his National Geographic book deal and his speaking tour with them. And I got him a bunch of campaigns and then Charlie Duke, you know, I would get opportunities sometimes that it didn't, it, even after I left Buzz, people would still just call me up and say, since you're the astronaut whisperer, can you get, <laughs> you know, somebody? So often I would just say, well, I don't really work with that person, but sometimes I helped facilitate, you know, some sort of branding or, or campaign or whatever. So a couple of years ago, I started getting opportunities or people wanting a female astronaut. And then that's when I got connected with Nicole Stott. So Nicole and I, just started doing a little bit of work together but then we realized we also have a really common purpose of trying to use space for good and make people aware of how space is really impacting our lives every day in so many ways that people don't realize and then charlie duke you know he finally too was like i need some help <laughs> you know i'm getting these inquiries and i don't know what to do so i've been working pretty closely with charlie and nicole and then occasionally someone will say Hey, I need a Chinese astronaut. Can you get me one? Well, no, the Chinese cannot do it. But Leroy Chow, you know, is Chinese American. So sometimes I've been able to get him things. It's like that where someone wants someone specific and I know who to talk to. What's the craziest thing you've ever had to do as an astronaut wrangler? Had to do? Got to do, had to do... (laughs) We'll let well, you take the, the reins on that one. We went to the South Pole. Buzz and I, you know, for eight years, he kept saying he wanted to go to the South Pole. Finally, when we were in the Maldives at an event, this BBC guy was like, oh, I know of a company that does that. And then I got connected to the White Desert. And then um took me a while. I had to basically sell all the rest of the spots in order for us to go. And then while we were there, Buzz got high altitude pulmonary edema. We had to be evacuated to New Zealand. So that was crazy. (laughs) What's kind of struck me more is just the way that people react to astronauts. You know, I've been the fly on the wall of seeing how people react to astronauts. And it's universal. Like people really, I think astronauts just embody achieving dreams, you know. That's the part that, for me, I feel really privileged to have been the witness, especially for the Apollo guys, to see how people react to them. And I, and I really take that seriously. I feel like I've become the keeper of the memories, you know, of people who remember the moon landings. So do you have any aspirations of, of documenting this in the form of a book or some way to preserve all of these things that you've been a fly on the wall for? 
I've done a bit of it. One of my favorite stories ever, and I had gone to see these women, was these ladies had hired Buzz to do a speaking engagement for a leadership conference. And when they had him backstage before he went out, they said, now we can tell you where we were when you walked on the moon, and which we heard this every day, every meal, <laughs> walking through the airport constantly, you know. And these women, st- their story really got to me. It's, it's my favorite story, which is basically that they grew up in a village in Turkey, no running water, no electricity. Their father only had a fifth grade education. Their mother couldn't read or write. And their father was so fascinated by the Apollo missions. So he would read the paper every day. And a week before the first moon landing, he went and bought a Grundig radio. So the night of the moon landing, everyone from their village came and listened to the coverage of the moon landing. And they said when they heard that they were successful and they landed on the moon, they said, we felt like we did it. And we were hugging and crying and cheering. And afterwards, everyone went outside and was very quiet and the moon was out and we sat on the grass and looked up at the moon. And I said, well, what did it make you think? And they said, it made us realize we could aim higher, aim higher than we were going to aim before. They they were going to go to try to get a college degree and become teachers, which was quite a bit higher than their parents. And instead, after the moon landing, it made them decide to do more. So the older sister, who was 16 at the time, went on to get her PhD in quantum physics. And the the younger sister went to get her MBA and has a successful company here in California. So their story really got to me. So I went and filmed them at home telling me and showing me like where they grew up. At some point, I really want to do something like that where I, you know, maybe revisit some of the people whose stories really touched me. But in the meantime, Nicole and I actually are working on a project together that we're in early development of a possible show about astronauts in a way that you've never seen astronauts before. So can't really tell you much more than that at this point, but that's that's one big thing. And in the meantime, I have this project called Space for a Better World. And so we're, you know, trying to raise awareness, like I say, but that's what this zero gravity flight that I have coming up is part of Space for a Better World, where we're doing this, you know, incredible, exciting, fun activity, but part of the proceeds of the of the flight are going towards water charity and force without frontiers. So everything I'm trying to do is also with the mind of trying to give back to the planet or to people in some way. Right. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've got literally 100,000 photos of my time, of my travels. And wow. all these extraordinary. Incredible. So at some point, I'm sure I'll do something with it. And especially like yesterday with Michael Collins passing away, you know, I posted a couple of photos that I took, but I have a lot more than that, <laughs> than what I posted. So yeah, we were, we were all heartbroken to, to see that Michael Collins passed. And is there anything that you can tell us about your time with Michael Collins that you were able to spend with him, like him as a person and that maybe the public doesn't generally get to see? I mean, I think that some of the stories are out there, but I mean, he was so self-deprecating. He was just such a sweet man and he was really funny and just always cracking jokes, but he wasn't interested in being in the spotlight. You know, he really just did not like being out in public. And I think it's not because he was a recluse or, or even like how people perceive Neil Armstrong, but just because he just was like, I did my duty. I, you know, I did these amazing things. I just want to enjoy my time at home. And he, he was an avid runner, painter. Oh my gosh. If you haven't seen his art, my favorite piece of artwork <laughs> he showed me when he was at Space Fest was he painted a snook kind of fish on a lunch pad like it was a Saturn V. 
if you've never seen it, <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> That's the kind of sense of humor that he had. So, I mean, he was just a lovely man, and I was very lucky to be at many events with him and just hang out with him. And he would call me up sometimes just to chat, see how Buzz was doing. And I'm regretful because I was just down in his neck in the woods. He lived in Marco Island in Florida. I visited his house a couple of years ago, maybe two and a half years ago. Just went down there to see him. And as I was driving down that way a couple of weekends ago, I was like, oh, I need to give Mike a call. I haven't talked to him. And then it just, you know, I got busy and I didn't do it. So I'm sad. But I mean, he, you know, I think the thing is that he was a very humble guy and he loved to run and he loved to paint and he loved to spend time with his family. And pretty much almost everywhere he went, his daughters went. So I know his daughters, especially Kate. Kate, his daughter is the one who kind of handles everything for him. And he was so devoted to his wife, Pat. She was a lovely woman. And she passed away a few years ago ahead of him. So it had to have been a privilege to have, to have met him and gotten to know him. For it, sure. it was because he didn't do that many public events. So, you know, I always say to people, it was very special to have gotten to hang out with him because he only went to a few events ever. He wasn't like Gene or, or Buzz or Charlie and the others who, who do lots of public events. Mike's never been like it. Have you ever wondered how to get your company's latest news in front of a global space sector audience? Then get in touch with Room Space Journal. With a large digital and print audience focusing on space, astronautics, science, and the latest news and developments from the sector, Room Space Journal is a direct route to increasing brand awareness in space. For the latest space news and to download a media pack, visit the website at room.eu.com. So you mentioned earlier that you worked with Nicole. What's it like when women have to make it in this industry versus what the men have to go through? I was curious about that too, because it is obviously a very male-dominated field spaces. And I know that they're trying to do better, invite more women, invite more people of color. But the interesting thing about Nicole, I think, is that she was already an engineer. I don't know if you know this, but she was working the space shuttle runway, you know, as one of the engineers in charge of those flights. So she was already at NASA for 10 years before she even thought about applying to be an astronaut. It was really one of her mentors at Kennedy Space Center who convinced her to apply. So she said she never even grew up thinking, I'm going to be an astronaut, or maybe I'll be an astronaut. It was more so other people telling her, you know, you should apply. Because she grew up with her dad, like building airplanes and flying with her dad. So anyway, I said to her, like, was it difficult? Like, did you ever have a hard time? She said, no, not really. But until she started training to spacewalk. And then during the spacewalk, there was a little bit like, oh, well, women are going to have a harder time with this. So she said that just made her more determined to work out harder, be stronger, you know, make sure, prove that she could do it. And I mean, she's the 10th woman to do a spacewalk. And I think there have only ever been 15 women ever who've done a spacewalk. So, I mean, she's in a pretty special group to have been able to do that. But I mean, she said in general, she felt like she was very accepted. I will tell you, I did a podcast not long ago for Space and Things with Mike Mullane. And Mike Mullane was in the first group with the first group of women with Sally Ride and, and those ladies, Kathleen Sullivan. You know, you might want to talk to him at some point because he was talking about how he fully went into the astronaut program, feeling that especially he as a white male was completely superior to women. 
he said then he realized while training with these women, Sally Wright and the others, just how much more qualified and how much more intelligent they were than him. <laughs> and it completely changed. He said, here I was, a fight, you know, I was a fighter pilot and I had a master's degree in engineering. He said, these women had multiple PhDs and they were just as capable physically. He said it completely changed his whole outlook on women. It was really great to hear his perspective. Like, you know, I was taught my whole life that white men are superior to women. And he said, so now I'm a huge advocate. I only have granddaughters and I'm a huge advocate for girls. So women and girls. One of the things I've thought about throughout the time together today, you've talked about the incredible educational level of, of some of these astronauts. And we know Buzz has a, a doctorate in astronautics. So I think one of the misconceptions of the general public is just how educated and how smart our astronauts are. They're often so viewed as a test pilot who likes to push things to the edge and do things that no one else has done before. These men and women are incredibly intelligent, incredibly well educated. And have you ever encountered times when those misconceptions have been, I guess, a part of the conversation or you've had to dispel those for people? All the time. Actually, my partner, Sophie Williams, who does some of the projects with me for a better world, she doesn't like it when she thinks that I burst the bubbles about astronauts. But Nicole Stott would agree with you. You know, I had a woman one time say to me, so astronauts are the elite humans. And I'm like, nah, they're just as flat as the rest of us. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're smart people, but there are lots of smart people in the world. I have a friend who's a surgeon and he was like, man, I missed my, my calling. I should have gotten more of an education so I could become an astronaut. I said, dude, you're overqualified. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is obviously the people who go for it, you know, of course they're going to, the ones who are just laser focused on becoming astronauts, they're going to do everything they can to make sure they fit the qualifications. But, you know, they're just people. They're just regular people too, you know? And I think that that's, that's something that Nicole even, you know, we joke about this all the time because we know a lot of astronauts and, you know, they're people. But I think the thing that sets them apart is the willingness to take the risk or to put themselves out there. It's much more that than it is about the intelligence, because like Mike Mullane said, he had a master's degree, you know, so he wasn't like overqualified for this job. It's just he fit the criteria at the moment and... I mean, there's that, uh, is it Johnny Kim, who's the new astronaut, Artemis class, the uh, Korean-American guy? Like, that dude's a Navy SEAL and is a doc, you know, he's a medical doctor from Harvard and I don't know, something else crazy. I was like, that guy is totally like ruining it for everybody else. He's so overqualified now, you know, for astronaut. But that's the thing is I think that if people understood also, how many astronauts had to apply over and over? You know, a lot of them had to try over and over and over. Even Buzz. Buzz didn't get accepted the first time. He had to apply again. And so I think that that's what it is, is the willingness to put themselves out there and, and also the determination to keep trying, even if they don't get in the first time. And the thing I do have to say is I really admire the camaraderie between all of the astronauts, I mean, internationally. That's something I think that is a great example of like space station, you know, international peaceful cooperation above the atmosphere, you know, and international astronauts all working together. They all say like you get off planet and it's very clear we're all just humans, you know, on the same planet. So that's a part of astronauts that I do really admire a lot. And I think it goes back to 
I mean, this is funny as a Canadian saying it, the American dream, you can do anything if you put your mind to it, or you can, you can be whatever you want to be. That's really inspirational. And it's pretty awesome to see. I think you're right that it, it, at the end of the day, the regular folks that have gone to school and chosen a career and then have chosen to become astronauts after that. Well, well that I, be I, I dream too. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. For sure. We all want to be Chris Hatfield up here. He is such a character. Like I met Chris through work many years before he was on the space station, you know, space industry up here is, is a bit smaller. So from the earth observation world that the three of us come from, we all know McDonald Detweiler MDA, and it seems to be, that's the the path of all Canadians. We all work at MDA at some point, and then we go off and, and, and do our career afterwards. But that's where I got to meet Chris first was, was at an event there. But no, I mean, yeah, fantastic what he's been able to do and introduce space to so many young people. It's just been really, really cool to see. Yeah. And I mean, one thing maybe a lot of times people don't realize is astronauts are not rich people. You know, they're paid by like government, you know, salaries. So when they leave the astronaut program too, people sometimes are really surprised. They make their living primarily, most of them, by doing appearances and speaking engagements. You know. I remember one time seeing what John Glenn's hazard pay was for his first trip into space. And it was ridiculous how little that they paid these individuals to put their life on the line and, and travel where no one had gone before. And it's remarkable. And I'm assuming that in your role working with several astronauts, I'm sure you get lots of requests for them to work for free or make free appearances just because people think they're already well off and and making it based on their fame. Yeah, people uh, used to say, how much did those Apollo guys get? Like a million dollars a piece? I'm like, no. As a matter of fact, Buzz actually has his reimbursement form for going to the moon was $33.30 because, <laughs> because of the uh, rental car. <laughs> and, and the in-flight <laughs> entertainment. Like the travel <laughs> exactly. literally, literally said, Kennedy Space Center, Moon, <laughs> Pacific Ocean, <laughs> and Hawaii. And that was his That's justification funny. for getting reimbursed for the rental car. <laughs> yeah. um, they all had Corvettes, right? They all had Corvettes. No, they didn't own those Corvettes. Oh. Uh, that was a very smart marketing ploy by a guy, a Chevy dealer in uh, Houston, who was like, you know, here's how I can sell a bunch of Corvettes and Chevys is to loan Corvettes to all the astronauts. It was a very, very powerful marketing tool they would never let them do that now <laughs> like uh, they, they have much stricter to... rules now about that sort of thing with nasa but the cool factor at the time the thing i was going to say too is like and if for those who may or may not know is especially the apollo guys they would all take what is called a first day cover first day cover is like a pre-stamped envelope like say of their mission of apollo 11 with their patch or whatever they couldn't get life insurance because it's such a hazardous job. And so they would take these first day covers with them on the journey so that they could sell them and auction them, especially for the families in case they died so they could actually make some money in case they died on the mission. That's wild. Yeah. So and that's the thing is people were weird about, you know, so I ran the Aldrin Family Foundation. If you asked for money, people would get weird about it. Like we spent billions of dollars to send you to the moon. And I would say that didn't go in their pocket. <laughs> yeah. That's why when I started the t-shirt campaigns that we were doing, that was different. You know, people were happy to pay for an item that would help raise funds, you know, for something. Yeah. But 
but giving cash to an astronaut. Yeah. Some people really, really bothers them. I mean, Chris Hadfield's done really well. He's, he's one of the elite in the group of astronauts for speaking engagements. So he's got an advantage over a lot of the other guys being one of the few Canadians. And that I was way. about to say, he has a whole country behind him. So yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Buzz Small, but big. Used to say, you couldn't throw a dead cat in my neighborhood without hitting an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> We see people from the space industry coming from all parts of, of the world and all parts of, of the country and, you know, coming into the space industry from South Dakota and coming in from very rural parts. And we see Neil Armstrong that came in from Ohio. And, and you know, it, it's one of the things that, that I've seen about many astronauts is they're, they're really driven to move, I guess, beyond the confines of their rural upbringing and go out into the world, whether they joined the Navy and moved through there. and adventured on. And I think that's part of it too, right? We we see people coming from all types of backgrounds where they had to work their way up and work their way out to get to these types of positions and scenarios. And I think it's just amazing that you've been able to to get to know so many of them. And and you know, when we work in the new space industry, all of us on on this podcast today, as well as you in the new space industry, I think one of the unique things about that that's a throwback to to the early days of space is we have people coming from so many different backgrounds that may not have traditionally grown up in the space industry. And this podcast is ideally suited for the space enthusiasts, but it also has a really strong contingent coming from specifically the new space segment. And you working with astronauts that came up through the heritage of, of NASA and, and big space, do you follow the new space industry at all and how oh, things yeah. are developing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. As a matter of fact, I mean, I'm very excited about commercial space. I think it's going to open up many more opportunities for us to actually progress with space. The thing that NASA, I think, has gotten so big and so, at times, bogged down with so much bureaucracy that it's made things move really slow. And, you know, say what you will about Elon Musk. I mean, he is making things happen, you know, and so... I remember I went and met with him with Buzz in his big SpaceX cubicle in El Segundo, California. Buzz wanted to show him his concept of the cycler spacecraft to get to Mars. And Elon didn't want to see it. He would not even look at it while we were there. And Buzz was like, I thought you wanted to go to Mars. He said, I do. He goes, well, how are you going to do it? And he said, I'm going to build a big effing rocket. (laughs) (laughs) Like where he is now, you know, so, and a friend named Jennifer Simpson in Portland, Oregon, who has always loved space. She's like a media marketing person in tech. And in the past year, she decided, Dagnana, I am getting into space. So she has been volunteering and now she's helping a small new startup, which Chris Hadfield is, I guess, maybe a mentor to them called Starfish. And they have developed a space tug to try to repair satellites that are damaged or to you know, uh, retrieve them and try to get rid of the space debris. So she's so eager and excited. And, you know, when we talk, she's always picking my brain and stuff. And she actually teaches me how much I realize I know more than I even realize that I know, you know, but I love seeing people who are excited about it now because it's such, I mean, space is the future. And I think if more people see an opportunity there, it's only a good thing to have more competition, have more options. And so 
I'm very curious to see how things will progress over the next few years. I'm a huge supporter of Artemis, but even NASA assumes everyone knows what Artemis is, you know, the next missions to the moon, the mission to put the first woman on the moon. And I'm always disheartened by how little people know about Artemis, but I'm hoping that with this new space economy and a much more broader awareness and commercial space, that that'll help make people see it as a reality, as something to get on board with, especially women and girls, which is a big, another big thing that I promote. I'm doing a project right now that I'm going to try to do a giant awareness project in Atlanta to try to promote women and girls and especially women and girls of color to get into space. So, but I, I'd, I'd love to hear more. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I always think big. People think I'm crazy. If you look on, I think it might be my Twitter, I, I put grandiose dreamer. <laughs> and that's because for the Apollo 50th anniversary, I produced the last five galas for Apollo 11 at Kennedy Space Center. And I did the big Apollo 50th in 2019. And I'm good friends with Professor Brian Cox in the UK. I don't know if you know who he is, but he, of, of he course. called me up one day and said, hey, can you help me get Duran Duran a tour of Kennedy Space Center? while they're in Orlando. And I said, sure. And so then I reached out to KSC and they're like, sure. <laughs> and, and then Nick Rhodes from the band called me and said, just to thank me for, for getting them the tour. And I was like, man, I hate putting you on the spot. I know what it's like, but I'm producing the gala at Kennedy Space Center. Would you and the band consider performing at the gala? And he said, we would be so honored. And so basically they said they were going to do it. But some of the people here locally were like, you're crazy. They're not going to come, you know. And I'd heard that people were saying Christina and her grandiose dreams. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so anyway, they did do it. And it was a beautiful concert after the gala in the Rocket Garden. And we had Intel brought a drone light performance uh, over it. If you've never seen it, it is on YouTube also. And so people always say, wow, you think big. And I'm like, well, I'm. I'm a girl from South Dakota who came from nothing, one of 10 kids. And you could never have predicted the trajectory of my life to Buzz Aldrin and to hanging out with Apollo 11 astronauts. So, and I've been all over the world with a man who walked on the moon. So if something's big, I'm going to go for big. I'm not going to go to small. So what I'm trying to do is a giant earthwork. There's an artist I found who does these giant portraits in the grass that are made out of eco-friendly materials and, and compost and grass and all that. And so I'm trying to do a giant artwork in Atlanta of a female African-American astronaut. And I want to do it in, in partnership with the Atlanta Public Schools and try to use it as a way to to promote, you know, because I've heard so many people say, like, can black girls be an astronaut? Can a black boy be an astronaut? And I want to show them there are, and there are, you know, and if, and it's a, it's a shame they're not household names. So if I can try to yeah. somehow, you know, raise awareness with it in a giant form that you can see from space, that's what, that's one of the things I'm trying to do for World Space Week in October. That just that, that blows my mind that people still ask those kinds of questions. Can I be, of mm -hmm. course you can be, I don't, I just, I don't know. It's just been instilled in me. It, it all just, just makes my jaw drop, but yeah, being a, a new father, totally appreciate all of those efforts. Like it, it brings a whole new perspective to all of that. So that's, that's pretty awesome. And it's well, exciting to see the new space, like with the SpaceX launches and the dragon missions and yeah. those like my daughter's getting super excited to see it and you know she's yeah. texting me like are you watching this or like when's the next one going up 
And it's just super fun because for a while it just kind of died down a bit and, you know, was a bit more background, which, which was sad in itself. And now everything's going and it's exciting and space is there. And I love this, you know, especially having two daughters as well, the focus of that and really doing the, the outreach. So thank you for that. But it's a, it's a fun time in the industry. That's for sure. Well, and with perseverance and ingenuity, you know, mm-hmm. on now too. And JPL, I mean, they do such an awesome job of their promotion, you know, of the robotics. But I'm excited that they're showcasing too, who are, you know, a lot of women are involved in that program. The interesting thing to me though is, and I will never forget this, is Buzz would say to people, but I've never seen a ticker tape parade for a robot. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. (laughs) So, you know, the thing is, is humans, you know, you watch the movie, The Martian, and even they, like when they're showing how excited the world is about trying to save this one person, you know, that's the thing I think that if I can show a woman who looks like, you know, a little girl is like, oh, that could be me. That's mm-hmm. that's what I think is really yeah. possibly inspiring to see someone who looks like them and that triggers something in their heart. That's what I'm hoping. You know, I can try to light the spark in someone else. Because when I was eight years old, I told everyone I was going to travel the world. And I, we were poor. So, of course, everyone's like, sure, sure, little girl. You know? <laughs> but I was like, well, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'm like, I guess I'm going to have to become a rock star. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just going to do it with a man who walked on the moon. You know, yeah. like you said, do it big <laughs> if you're going to go. And, you know, my kids, I, so I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. And they, because they see me always doing space stuff too. So it's not just the kids. It is also the parents, like you say, you know. If you can inspire the parents, the parents are excited about it. The kids are more likely to pay attention. So my kids are total space kids. As a matter of fact, my six-year-old constantly is asking me where my space suit is. <laughs> and he's he keeps telling everyone, Mama says we're going to space when I'm seven. <laughs> so, um, you know, to them, it's just reality. And I think that that idea of planting it, that it is a real possible thing they could go for, that is something that I'm hoping to instill another people in whatever way that I can, you know, especially with my story. I'm part of Oglala Sioux from the Sioux tribe in South Dakota. And there was a point where I wanted to bring Buzz to South Dakota to have these kids meet him, you know. And some of the people said, actually, they would get more out of hearing you because you're from here. Then they would see that someone from here got to go and do this amazing thing. So anyway, I have a real heart for that kind of thing, trying to help light the spark in someone else. You've definitely been making a difference and bringing space to young people, to young ladies and making a difference in the industry. And if there's anything we can ever do to help, we would love to contribute in any way. You know, as we get to the the end of the show here, I'd like to give you the opportunity if there's anything that you'd like to further let us know about the organizations that you support, any of the groups that you'd like to help and give them a shout out from this platform. Uh, we'd love to give you that that opportunity here. No, that's awesome. Well, if you're interested in learning about what I'm doing with Space for a Better World, you can go to allforbetterworld.com and then there's the space tab on that. That's how you can keep on the things that we're putting together in the space realm. I also have a project called Look Up to Her. And that one is a uh, labor of love that I still do on all the social media, but that is an ambitious big idea too, where I'm trying to projection map and add women to Mount Rushmore. I've gotten pretty far with it. I got a bill passed through the Senate last summer, but I've got a new administration to work with now. But that one is was to 
showcase women throughout American history who've made a big difference. To it's pretty community. amazing because Congress can't even get a bill passed through the Senate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It took, it, it took longer than I thought it was going to, which is a bummer, and it kind of slowed me down to get it done last summer. So it's something I'm still working on, but that's one thing. And then with Nicole Stotch, she's got a book coming out, so I'm going to be helping her promote that. In October, she's got a book called Back to Earth coming out. And maybe I can see, you know, she might be able to come on your podcast to help promote that. But she's it's not a biography. It's much more about what she realized when she came back to Earth, this perspective that she was given and how she can try to use it to help our planet. And so absolutely. Yeah, she's a wonderful human being. I, I always say she's rapidly becoming my favorite astronaut. But more than that, she's just a really good person, too. We have so much common purpose, like I say. So she's got the space for art foundation. So that's another one that I would, you know, implore people to support because she's doing amazing things with kids where they they draw or paint artwork of their idea of what space is. And then she takes that artwork and patchworks them together and they make spacesuits out of them. And some of them go to space. So anyway, it's space for art foundation is definitely worth going and supporting. That's very thank cool. you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today, Christina. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Thanks, Christina. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space in 60. Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space in 60, where new space speaks. Mm-hmm.